Wizardry was released for the Apple II in September of 1981, and along with Ultima, it laid the foundation for the entire role-playing genre as we know it. But where did its ideas come from? Where did all the conventions of the role-playing genre begin? Today, we're going back to the beginning. We're going to look at a history of wargaming as it evolved into actual role-playing which gave way to Dungeons and & Dragons and to role-playing games as we know them today. We're going to cover hundreds of years of history, so stick around and join us as we take today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 106th episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we're going to tell you some history on way to look at Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, which was originally released for the Apple II in September of 1981. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm partied up with my co-host, who always signs up for every single dungeon crawl we go on. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what is your fascination with labyrinths? Well, Dave, I often find myself lost in everyday life, so at least in a labyrinth, I got to choose to feel that way. My fascination with labyrinths has a lot to do with David Bowie. And his telescopic nipples? (laughs) I was going to say his junk, but telescopic nipples works too, so. (laughs) Oh my goodness, have we played a game at all together in the past week? I do. No, we have not actually. No, no? not since uh, the Two old weeks. storm. Yeah, it's been it's been a couple weeks since we've hung out. So hi, hey, hello. It's, it's nice to see you again. Yeah, it's nice to be back in modern civilization again. I know. And have this crazy thing called electricity. I know. That's that's uh, that's just crazy. And you're the one who lives in the hurricane land. It's kind of weird. Hey, do not jinx us. We have had a quiet season so far, so don't. Don't do that to me. I mean, don't. you live in you live in Louisiana, my guy. You know better. Uh, have you been playing anything around said storm? Uh, yeah. Since then, I've been I did play a little bit of Rocket League. Uh, most of my time has been spent playing Oxygen, not included. Um, yeah, I actually haven't even touched RuneScape, so just the two. Actually, I also played some Forza Horizon Five the other night. So. I I um. I finally canceled my RuneScape subscription. What? I mean, when's the last time I've joined you? Yeah, that's fair. I may have converted it over to a uh, uh, basically Game Pass equivalent for VR headsets. So nice. Well, with that, sounds like possibly maybe some RuneScape, but not really because you were mostly just canceling it. But uh, what else have you been playing this week? Uh, I played Rocket League. I don't think I played anything else PC based. Um, crap, what did I play? I feel like I played something with someone and they're going to be offended that I forgot. Anyway, I played some VR. I played um, Harmonics Rock Band. You know Harmonics. Uh, I played their VR title called Autica, which is basically like a shooting game where you shoot targets in time with the music. And I'm really digging it because it's a lot of fun. Kind of like the bullet one. Yeah, pistol whip. It's kind of yeah. like pistol whip. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's, well, it yeah, and it's more like pistol whip is a shooter that kind of works in with the music, and Autica's a, a music game that. Okay, I mean, that's fair. It's a music game that just kind of uses the guise of shooting targets as an excuse to move you in time with the music. It's not, it's, it, it plays more like rock band than it does a shooter. Whereas I would argue that pistol whip is more of a shooter first, you know? So that's fair. 
But anyways, that's fun. I got some other VR stuff queued up because there's something like 700 and some games on this service. So, jeez. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I was looking at that Humble Bundle they have right now uh, on VR, and I thought for the same money, it, it's got some of the games in it, not all of them, but I figured for the same money, I'd give this service a try. So, but yeah, I mean, it's if you commit for a year, it's nine bucks a month. That ain't bad. Um, that is not bad at all. But anyway, that's enough for the now. Uh, let's go to the past. You know, we today we're talking about wizardry and wizardry along with Ultima, which we covered recently. They are the two games that largely established all the modern conventions for the role playing genre. They're not the earliest examples of role playing. Um, you know, there were mainframe games. We talked about Rogue, for instance. And I mean, there was literally Dungeon, D&D. There were other earlier games. But I mean, most of the modern RPGs were modeled over on conventions that were found in either Ultima or Wizardry. Now, you know, these games were developed in the late 70s. And um, the late 70s really these games, the role-playing genre took its inspiration from Dungeons and Dragons, which was in its heyday towards the end of the seventies. The creator of both Ultima and wizardry, they both, they both cite Dungeons and Dragons as inspiration. So I thought that today, because we've, we've kind of danced around it for a while that I would take some time and talk about the history of role-playing uh in itself how we got from basically the beginning of it to D into wizardry so we're going to cover a lot of history today it's kind of dense but Woo! i know right i know right um so wargaming itself which is kind of where this all began was invented in prussia in 1780 long time ago by johann christian ludwig helwig that's kind of a whole mouthful huh uh, th- that's pretty common name for those times. Yeah, true statement. The game that he created is considered really to be the first true war game because it attempted to be realistic enough to teach future army officers actual military strategy. And basically what he did is he drew out these fantasy maps on a huge grid of squares. He was inspired by chess and the squares had different colors. Colors could represent different terrain, a river tile, a mountain tile, so on and so forth. And basically it was designed in such a way because chess was a popular game among a lot of the army officers and others, and he wanted to make it attractive to them. So making it grid-like like chess was his way of inspiring people to come over to the game. You could capture enemy pieces by moving on to them. You could shoot pieces. Artillery could shoot three squares away, for in- for instance. And so basically on this giant grid, and we're not talking like a 10 by 10 grid. We're talking like maybe a 40 by 40 grid type deal. A huge map drop, you know, divvied up into really small grid squares. Um, they play these war games. Now, Hellwig's game wasn't really a commercial success or it was rather commercial success. It was played a lot by officers. It was played a lot by laymen, but it really wasn't taken seriously because the way they designed the map in grid like squares forced the terrain and thus the armies into really unnatural forms. You can't make a a realistic mountain when all you have are squares. Does that make sense? Um, And so that meant that it, I in think all it honesty, does, Dave, yes. no army could really use it to train. So it, it just kind of represents the beginning. Now, this changed in 1824. In 1824, another Prussian officer named George Heinrich Rudolf Johann von Reiswitz created a, a highly realistic war game alongside his father. And instead of a chess, a chess grid, they played the game on the actual paper maps that the army used which allowed for more realistic gameplay. They had pieces on the map that were represented by little lead blocks. Uh, They were just rectangular blocks of lead that were painted red or blue. 
that could be moved across the map. If you've probably seen a map of a a, a war strategy in like a movie where they just have red and, and and blue squares representing where you and the enemy are, this is this is kind of where that came from. One cool thing though is he modeled the capabilities of all the units in the game on actual data that was gathered by the Prussian army dur- during the Napoleonic Wars. And with that data, he wrote the manual, which dictated, for instance, how far units could run or move, whether they were marching or running or walking. And they used dice to simulate combat results. And the casualties that were inflicted based on said dice rolls were modified by the distance. So it was more of a serious attempt at a, at a war game. Because of that, it really is looked at as the first serious war game. Uh, it was called Krieg Kriegspiel. Does that make sense as a German guy? Yes, it does. Yes, war, war. Uh, Krieg is war. Spiel is to play. So to play war, war game. Yeah. So the war game that is the first war game. It was the first one to be widely adopted by any military that we know of as a serious tool for training. So throughout the 1800s, war gaming. Kriegspiel. Am I even saying that right? How would you say that? Uh, yeah, Kriegspiel. Kriegspiel is correct. Kriegspiel. Okay, so Kriegspiel traveled around the world in different forms. It itself was translated to English and it was published in 1872 for the British Army. Over here in the United States, we got Strategos, which is an American war game published in 1880, and there was a book called The American Kriegspiel published in 1882. Both were heavily influenced by the the Prussian. Kriegspiel. And then in 1983, H.G. Wells published a book called Little Wars. By this point, H.G. Wells was an incredibly notable author. At this point in his career, he had written The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, and a whole lot more, to be honest with you. And in 1913, like I said, he wrote Little Wars. Uh, Little Wars the full title of Little Wars actually cracks me up. It is Little Wars, colon, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150, and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. That is a hell of a title. I mean, <laughs> is. has anyone even gone to 150 yet? I, You know, that's a good question. I don't really answer that. Hmm. So Little Wars was a book that provided simple rules for miniature wargaming. It didn't use dice or anything to resolve fights. Artillery attacks, for example, used spring-loaded toy cannons, which fired little wooden cylinders to physically knock over the enemy models. And as far as we know, Little Wars is the earliest rule set on miniature wargaming, which, you know, is gaming with little figures on a tabletop. Now, despite having such a notable author, Little Wars did little to popularize wargaming, and the wargaming community remained small for many years. Then in 1955, a miniature wargaming hobbyist named Jack Scrooby began casting figures out of type metal, and he sold them out of his shop in Central California. In 1956, he organized the first miniatures convention in the United States, if not the entire world as we know it, And it was attended by 14 people. 1956, a whopping 14 people. In 1957, he launched the War Games Digest, which is the first publication devoted to military miniatures. And these efforts are widely recognized by the miniature wargaming industry as the catalyst for basically a network that stretched from the United States into the UK, which really helped revitalize the hobby and popularize it in the 1950s. Now you may be wondering why we're talking about miniature wargaming when we're going to go into role playing. Is that a fair question? Yes, Dave, that is a very fair question. So please, please tell us why. Do you have any idea? Uh, I would assume that they, they based it on something that they did. Yeah. One of the hobbyists from the 50s was Tony Bath. In 1956, Tony Bath published the first rule set for a miniature war game set in the medieval period. And medieval wargaming is the basis for Dungeons and Dragons. Seriously. And Dungeons and Dragons is the basis for the role-playing genre. So, one begat one another. Hmm. 
1967, Henry Bodenstedt developed a war game called The Siege of Bodenburg. It's a huge tabletop game, like 40 by 40 grid. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's the siege of a medieval castle. And in 1968, it was a very popular game, and it was played by tons of people at the Lake, Lake Geneva War Games Convention, which was formed by none other than Dungeons & Dragons creator Gary Gigax. It's also known as Gen Con 1. And just under 100 people attended. You ever been to Gen Con, Rob? I cannot say that I've ever been to Gen Con, Dave. Yeah, me either. At the first Gen Con, Gary Gigax played the Siege of Bodenburg. One of his wargaming buddies and one of his miniature wargaming clubs, Jeff Perrin, also played the Siege of Bodenburg. Now, Perrin took what he liked about the Siege of Bodenburg, along with inspiration from Tony Baff's original Medieval Rules set, and he wrote his own set of Medieval Miniature Rules. Gary Gigax edited these, he expanded on these rules, and they were published as the Geneva Medieval Miniatures in what's called Panzerfaust magazine in April of 1970. Now, 1970 would have been Gen Con 3, and in Gen Con 3, Gary Gigax met a man called Don Lowry. Now, Lowry founded Get On Games, and he hired Gigax to produce a series of rules called Wargaming with Miniatures. The first game that they published together was a further expansion of the Geneva Medieval Miniatures, and they called this expansion of Medieval Rules Chainmail. Along with these Medieval Rules, this first edition that was created included a 14-page fantasy supplement, which included figurines such as heroes, superheroes, and wizards. It also included mythical creatures such as elves, orcs, and dragons, which referenced the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and other fantasy authors. So we have this medieval miniatures game, and here in 1970, they are starting to be influenced by fantasy and adding rules to be able to play with wizards and orcs and dragons. Right, right here. Who would have thunk it? I mean, it was bound to happen at some time, right? I mean... Given the events that led to it. Yes, of course. So as as Gigax is working on Chainmail, which arguably is the rules for where we come, Dave Arneson is trying to develop his own game that incorporates fantasy elements into a Bronstein-style game. Now, Bronstein was an experiment... Brownstein. Bronstein. Brownstein. Brown. Brown, brown, I can't brown, roll my yeah, R. Brown, brown, you don't have to roll your R, but it's brown, like the color, brownstein. Brownstein. There you go. So as Gary, as Gary Gigax is working on Chainmail and the rule sets, uh, his soon-to-be partner in crime, Dave Arneson, is trying to develop his own game that incorporates fantasy elements into a Brownstein-style game. Now, Brownstein was an experimental genre of wargaming, that was started by David Wesley in 1969. Braunstein was a Napoleonic war game set in the fictional German town of Braunstein. What made it unique was that unlike all these tabletop games that they had been developing rules for, where you fight with armies of miniatures and so on and so forth, Braunstein was a multiplayer, multi-objective game in which each individual was assigned individual roles, including some non-military ones. And by all accounts, it's probably the first actual rule set in terms of a role-playing game that we know of. Now, there were military guys, but also someone, when we're talking about non-military people, someone was assigned as a banker, and someone was assigned as the town's mayor. And so they all role-played as individual people, and like I said, it's, you know, as far as we know in terms of what's been published, this is likely the first time we've seen it. Originally, the way he had designed the game was that players were supposed to communicate with a referee in a separate room. But really unexpectedly, players began to use their characters to talk to one another and travel around the town. So because of this, um, Wesley, who had intended to be the referee, had to improvise the rules on the spot. Now, one of the members of this gaming club playing Braunstein was Dave Arneson. And they played the game. It was successful. As time went on, 
the group tried varia- variations using this this Braunstein style. They played a Wild West version at one point, and then the other was a creation by Dave Arneson called Blackmore. So Arneson was inspired by Conan the Barbarian novels and Gothic horror. And with these inspirations in mind, he began to develop his own game. He expanded the town, he expanded the castle, he created a multi-level dungeon, and he, in all of these, he integrated ideas from Lord of the Rings, um, from Dark Shadows, and he took the fantasy rule set from Chainmail and he applied it to Blackmore. Um... Now, he and he and Gigax kind of have a history. They had met at Gen Con 2, and together they had worked on a rule set for Get On Games called Don't Give Up the Ship, which was a set of rules for conducting Napoleonic-era naval war games. Real fun, huh? The funnest. I know. These guys sound like a hoot. And so he was familiar with Chainmail because he was familiar with Gigax, and he took he took the rule set from Chainmail and he applied it to his 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 uh, his own Braunstein game. When the original Braunstein creator, Dave Wesley, entered the army in 1970, Dave Arneson took over as referee and he decided to give his Blackmore notion a try. And it was a success. As time went on, they play tested it. They modified Blackmore even more. They added a lot of the innovations that we that are the foundations of the role-playing genre like character classes like experience points level advancement armor class and more these were all worked into blackmore as part of the playtesting on this game a lot of them can be found in a famous article that he wrote in the summer of 1972 called facts about blackmore in domesday book number 13 which really brought this game to the attention of many more people and one of the people who noticed it was gary gigax and the following fall Uh, Artisan was able to bring it to Gigax, who honestly loved the idea. Almost immediately after playing it and experiencing it, Gary Gigax began to create a similar campaign of his own. He asked Artisan for a draft of his playing rules, and he began working on a campaign called called Greyhawk. The two collaborated on it by phone and mail. Playtesting was carried out by the various gaming groups that they were involved in. As word got around, they knew that others were working on similar games in the fantasy genre, so they were in a hurry to get it out to the masses, and they began to reach out to various publishers to publish the game. Get On Games and Avalon Hill, they both rejected of it. They both rejected it, rather. And neither Gigax nor Arneson could afford to do it by themselves. In the end, what they ended up on doing was pooling their own money, and they took on a third partner named Brian Bloom, and the three of them started a company together called Tactical Studies Rules, would later become TSR Hobbies, which is where most of Dungeons & Dragons is published. And TSR was formed with the intention of formally publishing the rules of Dungeons & Dragons, which they did in 1974, January to be exact. Uh, Gary Gigax's basement was TSR's headquarters. There they produced 1,000 copies of D&D. They sold them for $10 each. Uh, sold through the first batch in like 10 months, produced another thousand copies, sold through that in like three months, and and off we go. We have the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. I, I'm genuinely shocked. Uh, I, I, I guess I really didn't know that it was like a trademark thing. No? No, I really thought it was just like generic term for the style of play. Actually, it's kind of cute. Um is it Gigax or Arneson? I I'm not sure. Top of my head, they were they were naming off uh, titles that they would use, and one of their daughters, who was young at the time, basically when they said Dungeons and Dragons, was basically like, "Daddy, I like that one," and so it stuck. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, Dungeons and Dragons is. I mean, it it's a it was a, a a rule set that was published by TSR, and and it it is the basis for role playing as a genre as we know it. But I mean. It's really fascinating to me, you know, we don't, role playing is such a robust genre nowadays, right? Um, we just, we don't just have traditional role playing. We have action RPGs, which I probably, there's probably more of nowadays, right? Um, and we also have Eastern 
role-playing games versus Western role-playing games. Um, but they all take their foundation from the same place, from this group of guys who basically made this role-playing game in their basements. I mean, that's probably exaggeration. When they're in gaming conventions, they're not in basements. But these were just a bunch of guys who were into wargaming, and wargaming became fantasy wargaming, and fantasy wargaming became Dungeons and Dragons. It's 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 both weird and cool at the same time. I think. I definitely agree with you on that, Dave. And I didn't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Dungeons and Dragons guy. I'm an RPG guy, but I'm not a Dungeons and Dragons guy. I've never played D and D, so I never really thought to look at it. But I mean, literally, the no the the notions of it started when someone was was playing a siege, you know, a medieval siege war game, and was like, "Hey, I can I can refine these rules." And when he refined these rules, he's like, "Hey, I've been really into Lord of the Rings lately. What if I add some rules to it? Where if I wanted to play with wizards and dragons, we could do so." And so he did basically you know now they didn't it's not just lord of the rings i mean we said conan we said dark shadows they took influences from a a lot of fantasy stuff at the time Uh, by no means is it just lord of the rings but it was cool that they basically took this medieval game and said i want to add fantasy creatures and then somewhere completely separate another guy was like hey we have this really cool role-playing concept where we're all playing as characters can we make this into a fantasy deal? And then somehow they met one another, found one another and together refined both concepts into Dungeons and Dragons. I I just think that's really fascinating. It is pretty fascinating, Dave. And so, yeah, D and D I'd say Gary Gigax gave us the rule sets and Dave Arneson gave us a lot of the, a lot of the foundations and the role-playing aspect. And, and, and here we are with D and D many years later about to get another change. Cause they're working on like a, a singular D and D platform called one D and D like a universal D and D type deal for their next revision. So we have D and D 1974 by 1981. It was it basically, as we know it, there were more than 3 million people playing Dungeons and Dragons worldwide. Among these people were Andrew Greenberg and Robert Woodhead. Uh, Greenberg and Woodhead were... (laughs) Okay. They were students. Uh, Greenberg was a student at Cornell University. And along with Woodhead, in the midst of, you know, the popularity of Dungeons & Dragons here in the late 70s, they decided to develop their own computer game largely based on Dungeons & Dragons concepts. Um, also influenced by earlier dungeon crawlers that they found on the school's network, on the Plato network. One in particular that influenced it was called Oubliette. Um, Oubliette. Oubliette. Yeah, so they merged their dungeon crawlers with D&D concepts, and they came up with a game. They coded it in Apple in AppleSoft Basic, but they found that Basic was too slow, so they had to rewrite it in Pascal, and even still, um, because Pascal had to be like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where you have to translate a programming language. Um, in any case, they they still couldn't even do it in Pascal. The technology they they basically needed someone to develop a runtime for the Apple computer that could that could run Pascal code, and that wasn't available at the time. They literally had to wait for technology to catch up with them. Um, in order to be able to basically take this Pascal program and be able to use it on a home computer. And they were really unable to do so. They started this in like 78, but they were unable to do so because they needed to wait for this runtime program until 1981. And this actually worked to their benefit because they had to wait because of the delay, the game took two and a half years to make, but it benefited from one year of play testing and game balancing because they they literally couldn't submit this game. They couldn't do anything with it, but have it where, where they created it. That makes sense. So unlike Ultima, it said like Ultima was kind of pushed out there and rushed. This was a little bit more refined because, because they had, they had a whole year of play testing 
you know, which a lot of other games didn't even bother with back then. As all this was happening, Robert Woodhead, along with a few others, started Serotech Software, also known as Sirtech. Their publishing partner, which was one of the guy's dads, insisted that wizardry would be professional. So they created professional packaging, professional documentation. They wanted to set it apart from all the other games of the time, which, as we learned in the past, were sold in Ziploc bags with printed manuals. Um, so it got a professional release, an actual release, uh, in June of 1982. Uh, I mean, no, in, in here in 1981. By June of 1982, which was about nine months later, it had sold 24,000 copies, which made it the best-selling RPG at that moment. By comparison, because we covered Ultima recently in a previous episode, Ultima had only sold about, sold about 20,000 copies at that point. So... Yeah, we got wargaming into that. Now, Rob, do you have any experience with wizardry? Any of them? There's eight of them. Uh, I may have played Wizard 101 once. <laughs> Not quite the same. Oh, well, what about those Harry Potter games? Uh, maybe inspiration, but still not quite the same. Well, so. I can't say I played wizardry. It, it's, it's really just a standard role playing game. You can create a party of up to six characters, like role-playing their five races, human, elves, dwarfs, gnomes, and hobbits. Uh, that was a whole thing in itself. Um, there were three alignments, good, neutral, evil, four basic classes, the fighter, the priest, the mage, and the thief. Uh, after, If you got far enough in the game, you could create elite classes, which were two merged together. You had the bishop, the samurai, the lord, and the ninja. Um you start out in the town, create your party uh, however you want, and then afterward you descend into a 10-level dungeon below Trebor's castle. That's your name backwards. Thank you. I, I didn't quite get that. Okay, just making sure you knew that. The goal, as it is in most role-playing games, was to find treasure, uh, which includes better weapons and armor. You kill enemies to gain experience, and you work your way to the bottom where you'll find the evil arch wizard Wordna. That's Andrew backwards. See, the guys who made it were oh. Andrew and Robert. See how they did that? Oh, See how they did that? Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, so on the bottom level, you find Wordna, and you defeat him to retrieve his powerful amulet. Um, nowadays, we call this style of game dungeon crawling. It doesn't... There aren't as many games that do it, so... Most of the screen is text. Uh, a little bit in the middle, you'll find a color. Uh, initially, it's a small first-person view of the dungeon maze. And then when you encounter a monster, the maze disappears and a picture of the monster appears. And underneath the picture of the monster it has all the things you could do, like attack, magic, defend, so on and so forth. Pretty, pretty straightforward role-playing concept, right? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. It was in color. It was the first role-playing game to offer color graphics like this. Um, that command-style battle system where I just said it has the still image of the monster um, being fought and all the commands underneath it. That It's one of the earliest games to do that. And that concept has been emulated by many other role-playing games. Like at the time, Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy emulated it. Uh, while we're on the topic of first, it's also the first role-playing game that allowed you to create a party. All the others were one-on-one. -on -one. This is this is the group. It's the first time we were able, able ever able to do that. Okay. Within months, there were at least two commercially sold game trainers. Or if you're not a gamer, that's a cheat program that we know oh, of. Thank you, thank you. Um, this is one of the earliest games we know of where people sold commercial game trainers and also somewhere out there, you could send money to some guy who would send you back a typed out book called the Wizza system, which was basically a strategy guide for wizardry. And likely it's also one of the first published like actual strategy guides for a video game that we know of. So I, I say that with a little bit of hesitation because like, there were magazines forever, right? So you could buy an arcade magazine and it would have like tips and tricks and how to play Pac-Man better or how to get a high score in Donkey Kong, right? Um, 
And so you could argue like those are strategy guides in one respect. Um, but this is like an actual like 30 page strategy guide that laid out the game and the layouts of the dungeons and so on and so forth. It's actually available online. I'll link it in the show notes for the episode. It's kind of cool if you're if you're curious. Um, so, yeah, Wizardry was kind of one of the earliest games to bring all those concepts from Dungeons and Dragons, your different character classes and your hit points and your experience levels and armor and and all of that into the video game realm. And it established those conventions and Ultima established its conventions. And together, these two are basically the basis upon which. I mean, for a year, I, I, you can even argue that role playing games to this day are still using these conventions, because even when you have like an action RPG, you still have hit points and character leveling and stuff like that, you know. True. Very true, Dave. And we all get that from Dungeons and Dragons. And we get Dungeons and Dragons from Wargaming. So go Wargaming. Crazy, crazy, crazy history you've provided us. You go from war to magic. Yeah, I mean, essentially. Well, and you know, we have a lot of people to thank. I mean, we don't just have in this case the creators of this game and we don't just have you know gigax and arneson the creators of DD to think because they took their influence from a lot of really great fantasy writers in the in the 60s you know and 70s if they hadn't written what they wrote then they wouldn't have influenced the DD guys to create their thing you know if if I mean, one of the classes in this game, elves, dwarves, gnomes, and hobbits, those are Lord of the Rings deals. If if Tolkien had never written Lord of the Rings... Well, I mean, are we really to say that those all weren't in media before Tolkien? Hobbits, for sure. Well, okay, that I'll give you hobbits, for sure. Dwarves and gnomes, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, 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 I feel bad because you're asking me a literature question right now. Yeah. Uh, wow, fancy that. And I don't That's know. okay. I couldn't answer like 99% of engineering questions. And I just happen to be able to pronounce German because there's some pretty easy rules. Like I before E is E. And oh. E before I is I. Okay, so. so to be fair, speaking of German, dwarves are in Germanic folklore, Germanic mythology. So yes, they, they, they exist well. Bingo. They exist well before. Uh, they exist well before. What about elves, though? See, I might have known about the dwarves. Also, an elf is a type of humanic supernatural being in Ger- Germanic mythology and folklore. So elves, elves and dwarves are Germanic folklore. Hobbits are definitely a, a Tolkien creation. What about gnomes? They've got to. They've got to precede. Um, Gnomes are North European folklore. So I guess it goes without saying, because Tolkien was European, that he took his inspiration from mythology and he added hobbits and away we go. So. Also, I think it's just pronounced Tolkien. 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 Yeah. Okay. If I add the I, you're right. It's Tolkien. Anyway, there you go. A gnome is a mythological creature first introduced by Paracelsus in the 16th century. Wow. Well, fancy that. We get some literary history in with our gaming history. Who's Paracelsus? He was a Swiss physician, alchemist, lay theologian, and philosopher of the German Renaissance. There you go. Okay. Fancy that, Dave. All right. Well, that's a lot of history, a lot of downloading. Was wizardry a thing, Rob? Were people into wizardry? Well, Dave, I think what's best to look at for that question is some critic reviews. Okay. So first up, we have Bruce Humphrey, who reviewed Wizardry for Dragon Magazine in September of 1982. Okay. Dragon Magazine was one of the official magazines for D&D source material. In it, Bruce writes that there is so much good about this game. It's difficult to decide where to begin. The variety of monsters originality of the rooms and intricacy of the characters will excite 
any dedicated fantasy role player. And while it's not perfect, it's a bargain at its price. It's not easily beaten or solved, and he recommended it to anyone tired of mediocre programs and ho-hum dungeon encounters. Okay, well, that's a critic who liked it. To be fair, that's a Dungeons & Dragons critic who liked it. Did, uh, did the gaming people like it? Great question, Dave. And for that, we're going to look at Computer Gaming World, specifically Volume 2, Number 3, which covered May and June of 1982. Okay. In it, Mark Marlowe wrote a review of Wizardry. He called it a game of epic... Wow. Of epic proportions. Nice. Comprising nearly 14,000 lines of code on both sides of a diskette. A fantasy role-playing game modeled on the Dungeons & Dragons game concept, with the computer assuming the role of the dungeon master. To him, the single most fascinating aspect of wizardry is the ability of priests, mages, bishops, lords, and samurai to cast spells. The game, he says comes with a book of some 50 spells which magic users can cast by uttering a magic word. He calls wizardry an extremely complex game. He calls wizardry an extremely complex game, noting that one of the most challenging tasks is to create an accurate map of all 10 levels. That's good. He goes on to give his readers some tips about the game, writing that one of the biggest mistakes you can make is attempting too much too soon. Patience is definitely a virtue. Your first few treks into the dungeon should be hit and run type maneuvers. Fight one encounter and get the heck out of there. Wizardry is complex, he writes, but even so, it's an extremely playable game. It's highly interactive to the point where you could easily become emotionally attached to the characters you've created. Mark personally could find little to fault with wizardry. Its biggest fault is that it's way too easy to get killed at first. In conclusion, he adds, I would rate it wizardry as one of the all-time classic computer games. It sets the standard by which all fantasy role-playing games should be compared. I mean, do you think he knew? (laughs) Yeah, I, I had to have, man. You know, magic. It's magic, magic to succeed into the future. <laughs> Looked into the crystal ball. Well, that critic nailed it on the head. Uh, critics seemed to like it. How did gamers feel about the game? Well, Dave, for that, we're going to go first up to Frecklefoot on Moby Games, who says that wizardry was one of the main reasons they pestered their parents into buying an Apple II. Frecklefoot was a big D&D fan who lived in the sticks and had no one nearby to play with. This game was a great solution to that problem. Not only were they amazed by the flashy opening animation, they go on to write, I was enthralled by the gameplay. While the graphics were crude and splotchy by today's standards, they amazed me in 1983. There was a graphic representation of the actual monster I was fighting, right there, in front of me. Of course, it was static. It wasn't animated. But I didn't have to remember what it looked like. There it was! I was fighting an orc! A skeleton! A slime! Woo! (laughs) He's very excited. And for the first time, I could actually see the dungeon from the point of view of my characters. The dungeons were rendered as crude line drawings, but in the 1980s, That was state-of-the-art. Not even the staircases were rendered, but that didn't matter. There were walls in blotchy Apple II white. How could it get any better? They do continue to say that though it wasn't strictly D&D, it was close enough for their tastes. Though it was just one dungeon, it was enough to satisfy their desire to roleplay. While Frecklefoot never finished the game, it gave them endless pleasure in role-playing alone or impressing envious friends. 
While it was far outdone by later games, Wizardry launched the genre and remains one of the most important computer role-playing games in the history of video gaming. It was, however, like many other home computer games, pretty unforgiving to the user. The player could only have one active game, and there was no way to prevent your party from getting killed when outmatched in a fight, or to back up and retry a battle. Once your party got killed, they really got killed. And the game was pretty merciless about saving the data to disk. If you pulled out the disk so it couldn't save the information that your party got killed, as they tried on many occasions, there was a good chance that your copy of the game would become corrupted. Even though they warned not to remove the disc, Frecklefoot and many other players did, so as not to lose scores of hours of adventuring. The only way to recover the disc was to mail it back to Surtex for repairs. Frecklefoot finishes by saying it may have been outdone by successors, but it was unmatched when it came out. A great landmark computer RPG. Nice. Well, I mean, you were digging through reviews. Did everybody like this game? Well, Dave, in reviewing the later NES port of MobyGames.com, PC Gamer 77 writes that Wizardry is classic, influential, and utterly obsolete. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. PC Gamer 77 writes that nobody doubts the tremendous and widespread influence of wizardry. Unlike Dragon Warrior, it has a legitimate claim to being the first CRPG. Every time you play a modern first-person RPG like Morrowind or Oblivion, you're playing a spiritual descendant of wizardry. Maybe that's enough to earn wizardry its place in the Gaming Hall of Fame. Maybe. But... Playing Wizardry now, it's hard to believe that anyone was ever impressed with it. I suppose some folks really wanted to play D&D solo, and Wizardry sort of delivered. Otherwise, PC Gamer 77 can only chalk Wizardry popularity up to fascination with early home computers. After all, even programming a simple routine in BASIC was exciting back in 1981. And if you think Dragon Warrior is difficult, then don't even think about playing Wizardry. This is the most sadistic game they have ever played. Everything in this game kills you. They spent most of their time in Wizardry being trapped, lost in the dark, poisoned, paralyzed, or just plain dead. Most of the gold that you earn in the early game going is spent resurrecting dead characters or equipping new replacement characters. This means you have little money left over for upgrading equipment, which means it's hard to die with less frequency, which means you keep dying. It's a bizarre Mobius strip approach to game design. They do say that it wouldn't be so bad if there was some kind of substance beneath all the layers of unfairness and frustration. Personally, they don't see it. You're a party of adventurers going down into a dungeon to explore and fight monsters, period. There is no story no characters, and for all the practical purposes, no locations. It's just one big multi-story dungeon, which is nothing but a giant maze of passageways that all look alike. The only source of entertainment besides fighting is hand-mapping the maze on graph paper. But after the blessed invention of the auto-map, who in the right mind wants to go back to that kind of fun? Wizardry is the CRPG's what the Velvet Underground is to rock music. Everybody in the business claims to have been influenced by it, but nobody pays much attention to it anymore. That's probably because every RPG since 1985 surpasses it in every way that matters. A great historical artifact, to be sure, but not much of a game. PC Gamer 77 finishes off by saying that it's worth playing, but only for educational purposes. Feel free to give it a try for history's sake. Just be sure to wear your rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, that's always a problem with these early games looked at through the eyes of a modern gamer, you know? I mean, absolutely. It's definitely tough to go back to these old games, but, uh, you know, 
sometimes it turns out to be worth it just to kind of get an idea and really have an appreciation for what we have now. I remember playing this on an Apple II. I think it was our uncle's Apple II. Don't hold me to that. I couldn't figure it out. I mean, this would have been like, I don't know. I, I when This is probably when I first got introduced to the computers when I would have been like five or six or something like that. And it was just one of the random discs, you know. And um, I couldn't figure it out. So I don't, as much as I've played it, I also haven't played it. Uh, that's it. Just I just remember it. I, I remember it being stupid hard. And I couldn't figure it out. I got frustrated and moved on to any other game. And I mean any other game. <laughs> so... Sounds about right for you. Yeah, true statement. Well, since then, since this first one, the Wizardry series has eight different titles in the main series and a number of spinoffs. In fact, they're working on a mobile Wizardry game right now with a 2023 release date. Um, Rob, have you heard of a Wizardry game ever in your life? I've heard of it, yes. But that's the extent. The last one was released. The last significant title in the main series was released in December of 2001. So, I mean, it's while. one of those games that I saw as I'm always looking through the flea markets where they have old PC games, you know. Or NES. They ported a few of these to the NES, which is... I, maybe I, it was I, NES. I, I, don't know. I just remember seeing Wizardry. I know. I, I saw st- Wizards 101. Yeah, I know. I stumbled on across the Sunday NES, so... Now, the second and third Wizardries are really just alternate scenarios that were written off the code base for the first game. In fact, the original version of the second game, you couldn't even play unless you had finished the first game and could import your characters from it. It was designed for characters that were leveled up enough to have finished the first game. Now, later versions of Wizardry True, I believe they poured that one to NES. They allowed you to create new characters that's you know were leveled enough to be you know to not die right away um and the third wizardry you played some years like the story takes place some years later and you're actually your character's descendants but like the first two you had to import your characters from either wizardry one or wizardry two to be able to play wizardry three and then kind of how ultima had a weird game in the middle where you played you you played as you know not the original character they did the same thing with Wizardry 4 here, which was titled Re- Return of Wordna. Wordna, of course, is the evil wizard that de- you defeated at the end of the first game. And in Wizardry 4, you start, it, you start at the bottom of the dungeon on level 10, and you have to work your way up 10 levels, earning your powers back and getting stronger along the way. Um, and then instead of fighting monsters, you fought against heroes from the past three Wizardry games fun little fact about the fourth one so they revised the first game twice there's actually revision one revision two and players could send their discs in and pay for basically the patch it was called um you could buy quote unquote revision two you'd send your character discs your your game your character discs in to get you know the game update and your characters transferred over um many of the heroes in the fourth game were copied from character discs that were sent into Surtech in that method. So people could potentially stumble across their own characters while playing that game. Well, that would be pretty freaking awesome if you ask me. (laughs) Um, After the fourth one, uh, you really had a bunch of just really standard role-playing games, which, you know, five and then six, seven, eight make up a trilogy. One, two, and three are a trilogy. Four and five are standalone. The six, seven, eight are another trilogy. Like I said, we haven't gotten one since December 2001. It's been 20 years, over 20 years. Um, Stateside. With that being said, for whatever reason, Wizardry has remained popular in Japan. And as a result, there have been a ton of spinoffs that really are only found over there. In fact, as of 2017, there have been 39 different spinoffs of Wizardry only four of which have been actually like translated to English and made it over here to the United States. It's still a series to some core gamers, just not stateside gamers. And its legacy is the obvious. Along with Ultima, it laid all the conventions for modern role-playing games. You know, we had them on all the mainframe systems, you know, like Rogue and 
Dungeon, D&D, all those were text-based role-playing games, the mainframe games, and Wizarding and Ultima brought them into the graphical age and laid the conventions that, you know, Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy, Might and Magic series, all these series that would soon come out all cite Wizardry as one of their inspirations. So they really laid the foundation for role-playing games in the graphical modern age, basically. So, yeah. Well, that was a lot, Rob. Uh, yeah, I would definitely say so, Dave. That was a, a lot of history. But, you know, we danced around D&D with the other, like with, with Ultima, so I thought it'd be fun to talk about it finally. Um, and then kind of go into where we get all these conventions, like hit points and, you know, character classes and so on and so forth. Like I said, we had done Ultima uh, recently, previous episode. If you'd like to check that out to learn more about some of the other uh, conventions in these early role-playing games, you can do so by checking out that episode. We, of course, have old episodes posted on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. I don't think I plugged uh, the website last week. I could be wrong now that I'm thinking about it. Oh, well. Um, I know, I know. Doing a solo threw me off my game. That's okay. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Also on memorycardlane.com, there is... No, I'm pretty sure I did. There is a link to our Discord. There is a calendar of upcoming episodes where you can submit your own uh, anecdotes about the episodes if you'd like us to read your memories of the games instead. There is also our social media plugs. I am on various platforms, as David is wrong. And Rob, where can people find you? I can be found twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, every week we tell you a story about a game. This week it was Wizardry. And through Wizardry, we told you the story about the history of wargaming, history of miniature tabletop gaming, the history of Dungeons and Dragons, the history of role-playing as a genre in itself. We taught you a lot of history today. It's been fun. You know, we like to teach you things, and in doing so, we learn things too. That's kind of the point of teaching. As you teach, you learn. Or you refresh yourself one way or the other. So, in recognition of that, we like to go round table and basically tell you what we learned so rob what's your biggest takeaway uh i i honestly still think that it's uh i just i had no understanding that D was straight up a trademarked thing and that it wasn't just a generic term for that style of play like i know i've literally seen dungeons and dragons printed on so many things because like it's the official thing but it just never really occurred to me and so you thought some guys created like this game like and rules in their basement and started calling it Dungeons and Dragons and then everyone just kind of started calling Dungeons and Dragons games no matter what they were like as just a generic like genre well I mean I know that there's things like I mean there's a Lord of the Rings one that I'm playing with some friends there's Pathfinder um, there's so many different ones of these but whenever someone tries to ex- had always tried to explain it, it's like, well, what what do you want to say? Like, oh, it's like D and D, but Lord of the Rings, or it's it's like D and D, but this, like, it just never really occurred to me that that was that its D&D own D and D was its own thing. Yeah, I thought it was just like a way of describing a specific genre and type of playstyle, like RPG that focused on mythical creatures. Well, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, you weren't here last week, but um, I talked about the teleprompter company because it was one of the largest cable companies in the 70s. But we know teleprompters as what nowadays? Uh, I mean, Teleprompt. They're, not... they're teleprompters, right? They're, they're the things that people in TV read their lines off of. It's a teleprompter. Do they still use those? I thought they just used like iPads and stuff. Now. I mean, but some some of them still use teleprompters. And that was a company who originally made that called the teleprompter company. And so like, it's the same concept where it started out as a brand and a device. And now it's just a thing. iPods kind of the same way people, people kind of call iPods. I mean, not everyone, but 
you know, there are people that will call any little handheld device an iPod, you know, or at least they used to, you know what I mean? So, yeah, a lot of those people are, are old. Ah, uh, thanks. I knew you were going to say that. I was thinking it, but I didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, D&D is, is a thing. It was its own marketed game, and it was the first rule set off of those, off of Pathfinder, off of the Lord of the Rings role-playing game, and any number of role-playing games after that, they all they all bear their roots from Dungeons & Dragons. What is your biggest takeaway, Dave? Tell us. I I guess I didn't know that D&D took its roots from actual tabletop wargaming. I never thought much about that. Um, I never knew about Bronstein style of gaming and that's where the role-playing aspect came from. That's kind of a cool concept and how they merged it all together. I'm just fascinated by the whole history. I'm not a D&D person, so I've never much paid attention to it. So it was just fun to trace the lineage from, you know, Prussian war games, um, you know, tabletop games into little wars. Who knew HG Wells wrote the earliest rule set on miniature gaming? I had no clue. Um, yeah, yeah, I had no idea on that either. That is. Yeah. So there was just a lot of there's, there was a lot of cool stuff in today's episode. So, yeah, it, it's it just, it's it just kind of blows your mind when you really stop and understand all of that, because like war created. Dungeons oh, I know. And dragons and it came from like a German. I, like, I know. I even yeah. debated that because, you know, damn well that the Prussians may have been the first people who like turned wargaming into like a tabletop like style war game but you know that like militaries have been doing drills and and quote unquote war games for longer than that you know the the they they the, the sun Tzu, the art of war has you know c- the concepts for training and you know darn well they practice drills and, and military war game it's just the point is war game has been around forever and i'm just I thought about going even farther back, but I was fascinated by the whole thing. So, yep. Yep, yep, yep. That, it's right. pretty crazy. All right, Rob. Well, before I plug next week, what else do you have to add? Well, Dave, since I wasn't here last week, I didn't get a chance to say thank you to everyone for listening. Hopefully Dave didn't suck so bad without me that you don't want to listen anymore and you're still here listening to this episode or you didn't even suffer through that one because you're new here. And if you are, welcome. Glad hey, that you're here with us. I I talked for like 50 some minutes. I didn't add reviews to it. I just talked for 50 some minutes. My goodness. I my condolences to anyone who listened to that episode. What did I cover? Oh, Dave. What did I cover last week? It was a gaming console. Come on. Oh yeah, I covered the beginning, the Odyssey. There yeah. I talked about the beginning. Hey, I was Odyssey. I was I was disappointed because I really wanted to plug your your um your knowledge of circuitry because one of the cool things about the odyssey is that it used discrete circuitry it's so old there were integrated circuits were really just becoming a thing when they made it and so the whole design of the console is built around like discrete circuits and the cartridges for the odyssey actually modify the circuitry to play so each game is different which really fascinates me as a concept so wasn't that similar though to how Donkey Kong or no uh, Missile Command? Mm-hmm. That's that's the same thing. Yeah, the arcade the arcades kind of did similar things, but this was brought you know this was brought that's in the, fair in the home form. So that's that's definitely cool when you think about it that way. Um, yeah, and when they got integrated circuits, they couldn't make the console the same way. So like the Odyssey one is like 12 different games and you could, well, you could, you could buy cartridges that would modify the circuitry, but then they got integrated circuits because they were cheaper. So they made a series called like the Odyssey 100, Odyssey 200 and like the Odyssey 100, because the way it's designed could only play two of the like 16 games the original one came from. And then the Odyssey 200 could play a separate two games um, because they couldn't really cost effectively put all these integrated circuits in the same system and they couldn't figure out how to do it because removable cartridges weren't invented for some time. So 
Yep. Well, as I said before, my condolences to anyone who listened to that <laughs> just droning on and on because here you've gotten it twice now. Damn, so I know. thank you to everyone for listening. It mm-hmm. means so much to us that you mm-hmm. continue to support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, All right. It's next week. Uh, next week is a game that was originally marketed as its creator as the best game ever. Is it the oh. best? Do we think it's the best game ever? Is it SpongeBob? No, it's Fable. You played. Uh, we've talked about this recently. You played. You've only played Fable three. Correct. You need to. You you should take some time this week, even if you only play through the introduction. You should play through Fable one. I I've said it to you before. I'll say it again. Fable three is the worst out of the three. Fable one was excellent, and Fable two is, in my opinion, a, almost close to a masterpiece. So. Fable's that's, an excellent that series. That just blows my mind because I maybe it was just because I really enjoyed rocking out on the loot. But more about that next week, Dave. So created by Potter, Ma- P- Potter Peter Malinow, Malinu, Malinu, Malinu. Fable is a fantasy role-playing game where your actions affect the world. But do they actually affect the world? And is it actually the greatest game of all time? Did it live up to the hype? Well, next week we're going to take a good hard look at Fable, and while telling its story, we'll also look at the career of its creator, Peter Molyneux, one of the more interesting figures in the video game designing world. Um, Yeah, so stick around and join us next week. Get on the hype train, ladies and gentlemen, as we take another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Skibbity-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-bop-b